Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Titus chapter 1, once you're there, if you would stand with me, we're going to read our, our uh, verses for today. Titus chapter 1, we're beginning a new series called the Blueprint Series. The verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus. This morning we will consider uh, four verses in chapter 1 as an introduction to the book. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifest his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, for preserving, for giving us the freedom in our country to be able to have our Bibles open on our laps. And now we pray, God, for you to do a work in our hearts, that you would draw us near to yourself, God, that you would convict, exhort, correct, rebuke, through your word this morning in our lives that we might be transformed people. Let us not leave the same people, God. We ask that you, if there's any hindrances, Kate has prayed already, God, that you would remove any walls, prepare our hearts for communion later in the service, and we ask that you would just come and speak to us now through your word. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Titus, as many of you know, is one of three pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul. The others being 1 Timothy, written around 62 to 63 AD. 2 Timothy, written around 67 to 68 AD. The letter to Titus is written around 63 AD as well, the same time frame as 1 Timothy. Paul is writing this letter from... Nicopolis, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 12. This is the capital city of Rome located in the, in the province of Epirus. Nicopolis means the city of victory. It was built by Augustus Caesar to commemorate his victory at the battle of Achaeum. Paul wintered there according to this, these scriptures, and apparently he sent Artemis and Tychicus to deliver this letter to Titus with a request that Titus would return with them to Nicopolis. Many people believe that Paul was actually arrested while he was here at Nicopolis after he wrote this letter and delivered back to Rome, which tradition holds he would then be beheaded by the hand of Caesar Nero. He's, uh, Nero, interesting enough, he came to Nicopolis in 66 AD to participate in the Achaean Games. And they so feared him that they set up the games for him to win every one of them because no one wanted to be, end up like the Apostle Paul. And so after he returned to Rome from there, the Apostle Paul also was imprisoned in, back in Rome and ultimately condemned to death. We find here in our letter, as we've already read, that Titus is Paul's true child in a common faith, according to Titus 1.4. He was a convert of Paul, a son of the faith, similar to Timothy. We don't know a lot about their relationship, except for Titus accompanied Paul to many places early in their relationship. We find that Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, according to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When they went to address the teaching of the Judaizers there, as they were going through the, their first missionary journey, and the Judaizers came into the various different places where Paul was teaching, and they were telling those converts, including Paul and Barnabas, that if you were going to be saved, you had to be circumcised and then adhere to the law. 
Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem as sort of a confrontation to that teaching because these men said that they were from James, the brother of Jesus, and also the head of the church in Jerusalem. And so Titus would then become a representation of salvation outside of being circumcised and outside of adhering to uh, the, 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 you know, the, the laws of the, the different laws of, you know, diet and all that kind of stuff, the dietary laws of Judaism. And so Titus had accompanied them there. Titus also uh, was sent to Corinth to deliver the, the second letter to the Corinthians there. He's mentioned nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians as a comfort to the downcast, 2 Corinthians 7, 6. A refresher, 2 Corinthians 7, 13. He had the same heart as Paul for the Corinthians, according to 2 Corinthians 8, 16. And he was operating according to the same spirit of Paul, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. Paul was very encouraged by Titus, and perhaps part of Titus's role was maybe pastoral care. Maybe he was raised up to take care of pastors, to encourage pastors. Listen, pastors need encouragement too. Pastors need care too, and so it's great that the Lord would bring those uh, up around, you know, pastors to encourage them. Pastor Mike played that role in our church for quite some time. He's still an encourager to us. But uh, so someone needs to be raised up and encourage that man. He's an awesome brother in the Lord, so encourage him. Paul, as an architect of God, writes this letter to Titus to instruct him regarding church leadership. According to Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was to put what remained in order. They needed structure in Crete to sustain these churches that they wouldn't self-destruct. He was to find godly men. According to this book here, with specific qualities to serve as overseers in the church. Titus was to appoint. That word literally means to set in place. Not in the sense of Titus appointing man to a call, but to a position. Titus was to look for the call of God according to the qualities of the Holy Spirit upon certain men, and then he was to set them in a position within the church to rule over the church on behalf of Jesus Christ. Titus isn't making anyone anything. He's simply to acknowledge the call of God upon certain people. And, and so this is also how we select overseers in our church. We watch and observe and we acknowledge the call of God upon certain men's lives. Then we approach those men and we ask them to pray. Is the Lord in fact calling you to step into this position? And we will ask them to pray about that. We will ask their wives to pray about that. And as the Spirit gives unity in that, we will bring people forward and institute them into a bishop-elder sort of position, a leader within the church. The churches in, there were multiple churches in Crete, and they were in need of structure. They were in need of teaching. They were in need of discipleship. And so that is one of the reasons why Paul set Timothy, or left Titus, I should say, there in Crete to help with that. Also, Titus is to exhort the bodies in the different churches in Crete to live godly lives. Um, you know, many were living unredeemed lives and then, you know, going to church. And so Paul says to Titus in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Listen, the church has always had tares amongst the wheat. Jesus said that. He said, there are tares amongst you, but do not pull them out. 
Now, if you know anything about that, about weeds and tares, you know that for a, a portion of time, tares and wheat look identical. You can't tell which is which. And do you know that there, there will come a point in time where Jesus will reap the harvest and he will bundle the tares himself, not with your help, but he will bundle them himself and he will toss them into the fire to be burned. That is not our job. We're not to go through church trying to figure out who's a tear and who's a wheat. What we are to do is exhort, correct, rebuke, rebuke, train people in righteousness and encourage them to walk with the Lord. That is what our call is. And so we aren't judging people's salvation. We are asking the Lord to do those things, but we do look at people's fruit and we do exhort them when we don't see the redeemed life being lived out. That isn't judging people. That is acting in accordance to Scripture to be obedient, to be, you know, uh, accountable to one another. And that's what we're called to as a body of believers. This letter I'm calling the Blueprint Series because Paul gives the architectural plans of building a thriving church community that both glorifies God and loves one another by serving each other. So a little information about the island of Crete. It's the fourth largest island located in the Mediterranean Sea, just southeast of Greece, southwest of Asia Minor, just north of Africa. It measures 160 miles long and 70 to, or 7 to 35 miles wide. Its location made it a hub for Greek and Roman culture, which made it a prime place for the gospel to be preached. For the Cretans had a reputation. They were known, according to Titus 1.12, to be liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Apparently, the Cretans were uh, such notorious liars that they coined a Greek phrase after them, uh, a Greek word called kredizo. It means to play the Cretan, literally to be a liar. You could only trust a Cretan, you know this, as far as you could what? Throw them, whoa. Which is not very far. <laughs> they were lying through their teeth. Crete also hosts a very large mountain range there, uh, elevation about 9,000 feet, said to be the place where Zeus was born. Now, if you're like, whoa, really, Zeus? Listen, he's not real. <laughs> I hate to break that to you. Zeus is, fic is, is a made-up character. But there were many, many churches there on the island of Crete in the various different cities there. Many believe that the churches were birthed from the day of Pentecost. As we read in Acts chapter 2, verse, one, verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There were Cretans there at the day of Pentecost. And perhaps some of them were part of the 3,000 that were saved that day. If that's the case, by the time that Paul would have traveled to the island of Crete, there would have been quite a few churches. The churches would have been, you know, quite, quite large and established. And yet they had no structure. Again, Titus is there to put in order the things that lack. Some uh, hold, hold to the, the idea that Paul and Titus, when they went there, established the church. Either way, what we know is the church is established and they need some structure. So as we enter into the, these four verses here as an introduction, Paul kind of lines it out for us. I've divided these four verses into three sections. First, we have the writer, then the mission, and finally, the recipient. First, the, the writer. Look with me at verse 1 there. It says, Paul... A servant of God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you still write letters to people, handwritten letters to people? Like, you know, everybody over 50 years old does that, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The only person that raised their hand is Mike Mondary, so you guys can... <laughs> I'm kidding. Some, hey, listen. It's awesome to get a handwritten letter, is it not? It's cool. That means somebody really cares for you. 
it's even beyond an email, folks. Like to write, to take a, to get a card, to write something out to somebody and mail it to them, that's a big deal, I think. But, you know, if you do that, that's awesome. The, but the way that we would write a letter to somebody in our culture would be, we would say, dear so-and-so, and then we would have our sort of our, the body of our letter, and then we would, we would sign it at the end saying, this is who it's from. In Paul's culture, the way that they wrote letters, it was customary for them to identify themselves first. Paul. It's clear who's writing the letter. Paul is writing the letter. Why did they put the, the, his name at the very beginning? Because they wrote on scrolls. And it would suck to have to unravel that scroll to figure out who this is from, right? <laughs> Particularly if you're in the book of Hebrews or you're in the book of First or Second Corinthians or something like that. Matthew, 28 chapters. Book of Acts, 28 chapters. That would suck to have to go back down there. But thankfully, they didn't do it that way. So what they did was they would identify themselves. They would tell a little bit about themselves and they would give a little introduction to why they're kind of some, just a little introduction, a welcoming kind of thing, and then they would establish who it is that they're writing to. That was customary for uh, that day. Paul tells us something very important, very, very important about himself right after he establishes he being the writer here. He says, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this is significant regarding the order in which that he places this. Paul considers himself a servant first, then an apostle. This is a humble way to introduce yourself, but it's also very important as it relates to who we are. Paul introduces himself with his identity first and then his function. It's servant and then apostle. And this is crucial, folks. Uh, you know, many people in our culture today identify themselves with their function first. You know, particularly in the world, I'm CEO Tim Romero, or I'm, you know, vice president, la la da, or whatever the case might be. And that kind of spills its way into the church. I am pastor so-and-so, I am elder so-and-so, I'm bishop so-and-so, I'm apostle so-and-so, or and so forth. You know, here we have the Dwight Schrutes of the ministry here where it's all about their identity is wrapped up in the title. I'm the assistant to the, to the regional manager, you know, that got kind of an idea. And what is the purpose of that? Power, identity, trying to define to people who I am. And that is that has made itself uh, made its way into the church. Here's what you have to understand about function, folks. Is function changes times at times. There are people in this in this uh, you know in this congregation here today that have the title pastor, that are pastors that have pastored in different forms and fashions, but maybe in this season they're not pastoring that way. That's a function. It's not an identity. And if you make that your identity, you're going to get messed up in your walk with Jesus. You have to be very careful about not allowing your identity to be found in your function. And so Paul says, let me tell you about my identity. I'm a servant of God. The word there, servant, in the Greek is doulos, which is to declare that he is a lowly slave. In fact, one Greek scholar called it the most abject, servile term in use among the Greeks for a slave. But it can also mean a slave by choice, a bondservant. In Jewish culture, God declared that the Hebrews uh, could only enslave themselves to another Hebrew for six years. So if you somehow got yourself in debt, you needed to sell yourself to make some money to do whatever it is that you needed to do. You could sell yourself to your brother, literally, someone in your nationality, your, you know, in, in the faith, someone that's a Hebrew. You could sell yourself to them for six years for X amount of dollars. But on the seventh year, they were to let you go free. Now, what would happen uh, during this time as these men would, you know, enslave themselves in such a way, they sometimes would be given wives, 
as they were serving as slaves there. Sometimes they would have children. And so the Lord gave them sort of a law relating to uh, somebody who was in that circumstance. Or maybe they just would rather live underneath a master because they thought the master was a great master. And that, you know, he could take care of their needs and they wouldn't have to worry about those things. And they really enjoyed that. So they would enslave themselves to that master for the rest of their life. Uh, the Lord tells the master exactly what to do if a slave were to choose to come to him in this particular way. Exodus chapter 21 verse 6 says that the master is to bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the, po or the doorpost and his master shall bore his, through, uh, his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Uh, this person would then be earmarked literally as a bond servant for life, a slave by choice. And this would become their identity. It's who they are. Everybody understands who that person is by the marking upon their life, upon their ear. Paul is declaring his identity as a slave. Every Christian is a slave of Jesus Christ by choice. You enslave yourself to Christ. We find that Paul writes regarding this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 22 and 23. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free then called is a bondservant of Christ. What he's saying is if somebody was a slave and they came to Christ, they were in a sense set free. You know, they were no longer enslaved to man. If you were free when you came to Christ, you became a slave totally to Christ. Either way, you're the same. You're a slave to Jesus Christ. And if the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. And so as to be a slave of Christ is to be free in Christ, but to be enslaved to Christ. He goes on here, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. I think it's important that we understand the terminology that we ought to use in relating to this. We want to water it down. We want to say servant. It is not servant. It is not servant in the sense of what a servant is. A servant is hired. A servant is hired and paid to be a servant. A slave is bought and paid for and becomes an owner of the master. It's important that we understand that. We are not servants of Christ. We are slaves to Christ. Bond slaves in particular. I love what John MacArthur said in his book, Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. He said, believers are not merely Christ's hired servants. They are his slaves, belonging to him as his possession. He is their owner and master, worthy of their unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience. His word is their final authority, his will, their ultimate mandate. Which are you this morning? Are you a servant of Jesus Christ or are you a slave to Jesus Christ? You have to ask yourself that question. I'm, I, I believe that many people walk through the Christian life as servants of God and not as slaves of God, and that is a grave mistake. Jesus is to be your Lord, your owner, your master. He is to be the one calling the shots in your life, not you. You have no rights in Christ. He is your right. He directs your steps. He tells you what to do and where to go and how to do these things and all of those sorts of things. That means that salvation, you have to willingly choose to become a slave of Christ. And he will become your owner and you will become his property. Paul says, you were bought with a price. It cost him something great to allow you to become a servant or to become a slave of himself. It cost him something great. And so we need to be, rem be reminded this morning 
that we're not servants, although we serve, but we are slaves to Christ, and we are called to obedience, to walk in His, whatever it is that He calls us to do. Paul is making this clear. To Titus, to all the churches in Crete, I am a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. Now he moves to his function. I am also an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle, as many of you know, means sent one. It, it is to define a special messenger sent by God to do his work. To be his voice, an ambassador. Listen, there are still apostles in the sense of the idea that we are sent into the world. In that sense of the word. But not in the sense of the apostolic ministry. The apostolic ministry, I believe, was isolated to 12 men. Apostolic, that were called to set in order the church to establish the boundaries and to explain the, the things that Jesus Christ has done. Those things have been recorded in Scripture for us. We have, the, we have everything that we need to know about Jesus Christ, about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit through these 66 books. We have everything that we need to know uh, here contained in the Scriptures and, uh, and so we don't need that apostolic ministry in that sense because it's been established. Many people believe that, you know, there, there's 13 apostles in the Bible, by the way. It's 13 apostles. The, the, the apostles uh, uh, replaced Judas, uh, you know, but I believe that was meant for Paul. And perhaps maybe they stepped out of line there. That could be the case. But there was, in a sense, a very special role apostolic ministry given. And we, want, we honor those guys for the, every one of them, outside of John, was a martyr for Christ, died for the faith, preserved for you and I the Word of God so that we could have it in our laps today. How amazing. Paul was sent by Jesus Christ himself Acts chapter 9, you can read his testimony there. You can read about what God, the mission that God set him on. But he was sent by Jesus Christ. He was appointed by Jesus Christ and he was sent by Jesus Christ to do the work of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that you also were sent. You also have been sent by Jesus Christ into the world. He himself gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You have been given authority, just as Paul was in his day, as a Christian, not to do whatever you want to do, but to go in the authority of Jesus Christ and say whatever it is he tells you to say. When people quote Matthew chapter 7, 7 to you, and they say, oh, but the Bible says do not judge. If you're using scripture, I want you to know you are not judging. You're declaring the word of God to people. You're declaring what Jesus said, not what you think. And by the way, he doesn't need you to expound on even those things. We're not free to offer our opinions to people. We give people the Word of God. And we leave it at the Word of God. It's the Word of God that does the work in people's lives. We want to give people the Word of God. You, like Paul, are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And God is making his appeal to the world through you. So make sure that you're a good ambassador. Understand your identity and operate in the authority that you've been given. I want you to know that contrary to popular belief, the Apostle Paul was not well received. Even amongst brothers. And so maybe you feel in, in, in your ministry and you're stepping out and you're walking in the, your identity and you're walking in the authority that has been given to you, 
and you're not being received, well, you're in good company. Here's what Paul didn't do. Stop being who he was called to be. And maybe that's a word for you today, that you've stopped being who you're called to be because you're not being received like you'd be, like to be received. And maybe that isn't, you know, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. So we don't stop doing what God calls us to do because we don't see what he's doing. And I can tell you, there would be many, many pastors that would step out of the pulpit and walk away completely and just say, I'll go serve Lord somewhere else because I'm not seeing what I'd like to see. You know, it's interesting uh, when you go to a conference and the first thing that people say to you when you're there, one pastor to another, hey, how big is your church? Basically. When you're 20 people, you're like, oh, we're like, you know, you know, I don't know, we're under 100, you know. <laughs> you know, and you don't really get into the specifics, if you know what I mean. You are, you know, and, and, and there's a transition that happens, and you can see it amongst you guys that are pastors know this. Some guys that are seeing some good results are saying, oh, we're like, you know, 50, you know, or so families or so. And then other guys, as they continue to grow, they're like, yeah. I mean, you know, they don't, so a lot of guys don't tell you, which is good. I'm one of those guys. Because it doesn't matter. It's not about that. If I want to discourage myself, I'll start focusing on numbers. And I, if, if I want to, and it really, honestly, it doesn't matter how many people come to your church. What matters is how many people are growing in the Lord. How many people are doing this? My wife, let me tell you something. My wife has encouraged me so much over the years of just reminding me, remember we're supposed to do it for one person. Yeah, but no. You got to do it for one person. If you're not willing to do it for one person, you're not worthy to serve a hundred so you got to be willing to do it for one. The Bible says do not despise the days of small things. When God is at work and, and listen, he's doing a lot of work in you at, in the, the days of small things. He's, he's doing a lot of work in you to prepare you for what's ahead. And if you give up, then you're going to miss out. The Apostle Paul didn't let people discourage him, but he pressed on and he kept pursuing his call upon the Lord's call upon his life. And maybe somebody here needs to hear that this morning. Do not give up. Do not be anything more than you're called to be or anything less than you're called to be. You be exactly who he's called you to be. Now this is a lot to say that Paul knows his identity and his function. He never find him identify himself with his title first, and I think that's important to understand. Many people in our world today are defined by what they do, and that is their life. People have jobs, and they're defined by their jobs, and their self-worth is sucked up into their job, and what they can accomplish through their career, and all of these kinds of things. I'm telling you, that is foolish. And that will you'll totally be derailed off of the plan that God has for your life if you allow yourself to be sucked into that rabbit hole. Do not find your identity in your function. Find your identity in Jesus Christ as a slave to Christ. Paul goes on here and he tells us about his mission. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen, for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul's mission was very simple here. To share the word of God with those God is calling to himself, to his elect, his elect, he's, his ekkelos. That's the Greek word there, which means chosen one. But Paul is supposed to share with them in two specific ways, evangelistically and also by way of discipleship. That is his mission. He is to evangelize, yes, but he's also to disciple. And that is also your mission. And we'll find that out in a second. 
Paul mentions God's elect here. Those who are chosen by God. Those who are saved by God are chosen by God. And you can't get around that in the Bible, folks. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he's chosen you. You were chosen. Aren't you glad that he chose you from the foundation of the world? I know me. There is no way I would have chose me. But he chose me from before the foundation of the world, knowing everything that I would do, past, present, and future. He knew my life before I was born, and he chose me, and he chose you. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. I, I, that One of my favorite worship songs, I can't ever get over these words, is how he loves. I love that song. Because it reminds me over and over again, he loves me because he's love. He doesn't love me because I'm good enough to be loved. He loves me because he is love and he loves. And I love that. I love that so much. He loves us. He is called. He is chosen. He is wooed man to himself. None of that you can do. None of that you can do. I don't care what kind of calling you have on your life, what kind of anointing you have on your life. It's God who draws a person to himself. He does use man. We get to be, you know, I, it's kind of like a wedding. If you've ever officiated a wedding, you're right in the midst of this most intimate moment between two people. And they're like, you know, and you're, you're like, hello, are you there? I mean, you're supposed to say these words. And then you can get distracted and say somebody's wrong name, which you never want to do. <laughs> but it's like you're in the, in, the, in the pit, right in the pocket there. And you get to see this interaction between a husband and wife. You get, to, you get to watch them give themselves to each other. What an incredible privilege it is to be there, to watch that, to be part of that, to watch God, you know, join these two together. That is what it's like. When you share the gospel with people, it's the Lord drawing himself, drawing that person into himself, and he giving himself to them, and them giving themselves to them, and you get to be right there and watch it. It is so amazing. What a privilege we have to see those who God has chosen, to see those who give the gospel to those, uh, and watch the Lord do that amazing work. Now, lest you become prideful about being chosen, the kind of people God uses are not super smart people. It says here in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, For I consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being uh, might boast in the presence of God. Paul himself was chosen, and he was sent for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And so are you, Christian, through the Great Commission. Let's look at the Great Commission again. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, there, go therefore, very important, and make disciples, evangelism, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them discipleship to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are called to be both evangelists and discipler by way of the Great Commission here. You are, you know, you might tell yourself and, you know, I'm not a great evangelist or, man, I'm not a great teacher. Well, guess what? The Lord does that work through you. So don't worry. He'll take care of you. You just be obedient to what he tells you to do. Um, Paul was called to make disciples. This is evangelistic. You're supposed to go out and share the gospel with people, share the message of Jesus Christ with people. And when people receive the gospel, then they're supposed to be discipled, baptized, and then taught the words of Christ. This is 
to, to instruct is the Greek word that teach there. It means to disciple. Paul wasn't just to evangelize, but also to teach. And it, it, he goes on here in Titus, he, he, it's for the sake of the faith, that they might grow in the knowledge of the truth. This is discipleship. People need to grow in their faith. If people aren't brought along, if somebody doesn't come alongside them and help them grow, how are they going to grow? How are you going to grow? How did you grow? Did somebody come alongside you? Did you, did you sit and listen to sermons of somebody else? Did you read commentaries of somebody else? Did you read books of somebody else? Did you get some training some way, shape, or form? You have been discipled for the sake of discipling. You're called to disciple, Christian. Not just share the gospel with people, but then come alongside them and share what it means to live for Christ. How to walk in newness of life. How to read the word and glean from the word and apply it to your life. That is your call. That is my call. Listen, my, my buddy Steve here taught me the word Rima this week. Here in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That word, word there in, in the Greek is rima. It means saying, the saying of Christ. It, it can mean this. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean just a word of, from the Lord to give to somebody. It can mean the word of God itself. It can mean all kinds of different things. But here's what we do know. It's a word from Christ. It's a word from Christ. We're not free to give people our words. We're free to give people the word of Christ. And the word of Christ increases people's faith. Let the word of Christ flow through you as you minister to people. Do not be afraid to speak the words that the Lord gives you to somebody. Even if it seems offensive. Do not be afraid to tell people exactly what the Lord is telling you to say because maybe God's going to use you in that moment to increase their faith. It is, we need to be discipling people so that they can grow. Let me ask you a question. How did David slay Goliath? How in the world does this little boy step onto a battlefield with a giant when the entire Israeli army is afraid to step on. These are trained men that are warriors and they're afraid to step on the battlefield with Goliath. And yet here comes this little shepherd boy. It was through the knowledge that he was given about who God is. Practical knowledge. Applied knowledge. Do you know before this, David faced a lion. Do you know before this, David faced a bear. And it was the Lord that came upon him that gave him the ability to dismantle these, these beasts that were trying to steal the sheep for this purpose. So that one day, David could have the faith to step on a battlefield and say, listen, I've seen God dismantle lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine has nothing against my Lord. It's the Lord that fights the battle. David understood that. But it didn't just come to him in that moment. It came through practical, the Lord practically discipling him along the way, increasing his faith. And that's what the Lord is doing in your life. You're, you might be facing a circumstance today, and you're saying, God, I cannot see how anything good could come of this. Let me tell you something. Is God good? Is God for you? Is God working in your life right now to do something amazing? Yes, he is. You might not see it, but yes, he is. And it's by faith we believe that. But here's what I want you to understand. He's preparing you for something. He's preparing you for something. None of this is meaningless. I don't care what the suffering is, what the circumstance looks like, it's not meaningless. God is doing something through it. God is, he's shaping you and changing you. Maybe it's just to press into him a little bit more. Maybe it's because he's going to use you in a unique way down the road in somebody else's life. We don't know, but when, when we encounter those things that we don't understand, as Pastor Chuck said, we fall back on those things that we do understand. We trust the Lord. We know that he loves us and that he's for us. Paul understands that if these, these, these people in uh, 
Crete are going to um, walk in their faith and be able to make a difference in the world. They're going to have to grow in their knowledge of the Lord. They're going to have to grow in their, uh, um, in their understanding of how big God is in view of every other circumstance that they face in life. And as they, as they recognize that, what will automatically happen is godliness. That's what he says here. He says that he was sent for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. You can't separate it. What he's saying is if your life is being changed, your, your ability to live in godliness is also increasing. You're living godly lives, godlike, to be godlike, to adhere to, to the things that the Lord tells us to adhere to, to, to live in that way, not as a means of salvation, uh -uh, but as a means of evidence of your salvation. To say, hey, Jesus said, if you don't obey my commandments, you're not part of me. You're not in me. What he's saying is that's not how you're saved. That's the evidence that you're saved. To be sanctified over and over again. You will, be, you will grow in your godliness. If you're growing in the Lord, you're growing in godliness. If you're not growing in godliness, let me tell you something. You're not growing in the Lord. You may be deceiving yourself, but to grow in the Lord is to grow in godliness. That's what Paul is saying here. As you increase your knowledge, your faith increases, so godliness follows that. You don't want to do those things, or, you know, you have the ability to fight those things. You understand even some things you don't even know are wrong, but you're doing, that all of a sudden it comes to fruit. You know, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, tells you, like, yeah, you probably shouldn't be doing that. And you're like, oh, Lord, I don't want to do that. Godliness. Godliness, the Lord wants you to constantly be growing in that. And it's not perfection, but it's a, a constant progression of growing to be more like Jesus. The more you know, the more you should be growing in, in the Lord in godliness. And, you know, there's also the, the issue of growing in the intellectual, but not in the spirit, and not allowing the information to get from the head to the heart. And many people will miss heaven by how many inches? Eight, 18, six, something like that. You know, something, somewhere from here to here they'll miss it, but yeah. <laughs> they will miss it because it can become a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge. A heart knowledge is just simply an applied knowledge. An applied knowledge. Paul is saying that the manifestation of the knowledge of God through the Spirit of God is found in the fruit of godliness. This is the evidence of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, 2 Corinthians 6, 9 through, through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, uh, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The evidence of your salvation is in a changed life. It's in a changed life. We're no longer the same person. Listen, I, I think there are people that deceive themselves into thinking that they have salvation and that they, they're, they're believers in Christ and then they just do whatever they want to do. But you re realize that when you come to Christ, He has to become your Lord. He has to become your Lord. And when He becomes your Lord, Paul goes on to say that you, then you have the hope of eternal life. You have the hope of eternal life as the Lord, uh, you know, becomes your, 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 your Lord. Paul was not brought, wasn't sent into the world to bring hopium, but to bring hope through the gospel. God promises this. God cannot lie. God promises in, in John 3.16, in the, John 3.16, see that whoever believes in him, in his son Jesus Christ, should not perish but have eternal life. God cannot lie. Whatever he speaks come to pass.
That means if someone has truly received Jesus Christ, they will not perish, period. Why? Because it says it. Does that have anything to do with you? No. It has everything to do with him. It has everything to do with him and his ability to save. The only thing that it has to do with you is if you have truly believed. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is no losing your salvation. You either have it or you don't. You don't get it and then lose it. You have it. And if you have it, you have it. And it will be displayed by a godly life. Not a perfect life, but a, a life that desires to live godly. This is the hope that we're offered through the gospel. Eternal security. Jesus said this in John 6, verses 35 through 40. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is emphatic. Shall never thirst. If they believe. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. There are people who tell you, yes, I believe. There are people who have this, what appears to us as a changed life. And yet, Jesus says they have not believed. He goes on, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does never mean? Never. It means never. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the message that the Apostle Paul was entrusted with to take into the world. And this is the same message that you and I are entrusted with. Our mission is exactly the same as the Apostle Paul's, to share the Word of God with God's elect evangelistically and through discipleship. Finally, we come to the recipient. Look at verse 4 here where Paul says to Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. As we've already noted here that Paul is writing to Titus. Titus was the kind of man that Paul could trust to not just represent himself, but also the Apostle Paul, the church at large, and ultimately Jesus Christ. He says in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Listen to what he says. Have nothing evil to say about us. Paul is telling Titus, you're not just representing yourself. When you go into these churches, you're not just representing yourself. Remember, you're representing us. Who's us? The Apostle Paul, namely. The church. And most importantly, Jesus Christ. You're, you're not representing yourself. When you go into the world, Christian, you represent more than yourself. You represent the church that you are part of. You represent, more, most importantly, Jesus Christ. You're not just by yourself. So remember that on Monday morning when you're in the office or Wednesday when you're at the grocery store. Keep yourself in check, man, when the server at the restaurant doesn't get your order right or doesn't bring the food on time. How about a bless them? How about leave some grace behind? How about do what Jesus did? Keep yourself in check because you're not just representing yourself. Paul goes on here. He says, Titus was a true child of the faith, true child of Paul, listen, in a common faith. It's not in a Baptist faith. 
It's not in a Presbyterian faith. You know, it's, it's not in a Pentecostal faith, a Church of Christ faith. It's not even in a non-denominational faith. I know that that's like, whoa, really? I thought Jesus was non-denominational. He is, but, but it's not in that. It's in a common faith. It's in a common faith, church. No one has a corner on faith because it's a common faith. It's not just given to one person. It's given to anyone and everyone who wants to receive it. It's common. And it's so often the common that gets trampled on. It's so often the common things that we've received that, that we don't see the value in. But let me tell you something. The faith that you've been given, the saving faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ is common. It's not exclusive. It's not just for some people. It's for all people. And therefore, you can feel free to share it with whoever you want to because it is for them. You give them that common faith. Not only do we have a common faith, but we have a common salvation according to Jude chapter or Jude 3. Which is why we don't divide over anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the dividing line between what is considered heresy and what is considered not heresy. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, there are all kinds of different teachings out there, and, and I would not feel, you know, at liberty to just do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, remember the common faith is associated with one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the foundation. You know, there are brothers and sisters in the Lord that do not agree with us regarding the gifts of the Spirit. There are brothers and sisters in the Lord that, even within our own church, that don't necessarily see eye to eye on the rapture of the church. That's okay. It is okay. Here's what I would tell you. Study the Word and make sure you have a reason. Make sure you have the ability to defend what you believe. Study it. God will lead you. Study it. Do not take man's word. Do not take um, what man says, you know, just at face value, you get into the Word. You're called to be a Berean. You need to study the Word. The only way that you can really give somebody something is if you have it yourself. So you have to study this. You have to know what you believe, and you have to, be, you have, to uh, have the ability to explain it to people. Don't just receive it blindly, folks. You get into the Word of God. There are people that believe all kinds of different things. About all kinds of different, you know, there, there's lots of people that have different ideas about the Ezekiel War and Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's okay. Guess what? We'll all figure it out once Jesus comes back. Then we'll be like, dude, you had it right on, brother. But you're in heaven and I'm in heaven. That's interesting. Because it comes back to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is our common faith. That does not mean, that does not mean that we don't strive for accurate doctrine. That does not mean that we don't study the Word of God and, and do our best to understand everything that we can understand. We are called to do that. You want to offer the truth. All I'm saying is that what will keep you out of heaven is not your view on the rapture. What will keep you out of heaven is your view on Jesus Christ and whether He is enough for, to cover you for your sins. And Paul comes to this last statement that he makes in this introduction, and he says, Grace and peace from God the Father our, and Christ Jesus our Savior. I love how my brother Damien Kyle, Calvary Chapel Modesto, points, points out here the order. It's grace, then peace. For you can never truly know the peace of God until you have come to know the grace of God. And that is the truth. That is the truth. It's grace first. His unmerited favor for you. He doesn't love you because you're worthy of it. He loves you because He is worthy. And because He has chosen to love you. And He loves all of us. And then He gives us, He extends the hand of salvation to you. That is grace. If you want a definition of grace, the most accurate definition of grace is Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God, folks. He is the extended hand of God to you and I who are undeserved. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve His death on a cross. 
We don't deserve him paying the penalty for our sin. We do not deserve that. What we deserve is hell and condemnation, but because of the grace of God, we, we receive the peace of God. Listen, I don't know where you're at with the Lord today, but here's what I know. If you truly, truly want to know the peace of God, you have to receive the grace of God. And the grace of God is found at Calvary, folks. It's found upon a crucified Savior who died for your sins and then rose again from the dead so that you could be saved. That is the grace of God. Some of you here today may not know the Lord. And my prayer is for you that you come to know the Lord today, right now, before we partake of communion, before we take the elements of the, the bread and the cup, which are to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They're not the physical body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They're symbolic of the, blood and, uh, of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're to do this in remembrance of Him. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, do not take this. This is not for you. It's for believers. But here's what I'll tell you. You can come a believer right now. You can come a believer right now. You can receive the forgiveness of your sins right now. And this could be, this could be the very first communion on Freedom Sunday, the 4th of July here, where we're representing not just our physical freedom, but our spiritual freedom. So I would encourage you this morning, if you do not know the Lord, come to know Him. Come to know Him today. He's a prayer away. He's a prayer way. He wants to forgive you for your sins. He loves you so much. And he wants to cleanse you. Here's what I want to say to believers this morning. You too cannot know the peace of God actively in your life as a redeemed person until you continue to find it in the grace of God. Sometimes we become believers and we transition out of grace into works. We start to think, like, i got to read my Bible more. i got to do this and that more because that's going to position me for this and that with the Lord. You know what's going to position you for this or that with the Lord? Grace. Grace. We don't deserve it. So if you are lacking peace in your life this morning, you come to the table of grace, to the throne of grace boldly, and you say, Lord... What is it that I'm missing in my life that I don't have the peace that you said I could have? You said that I could have the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not circumstantial, folks. That means it's beyond circumstances. Listen, God is a God of grace. Jesus Christ is a Prince of Peace. And He wants to give you peace. And we come to it the same way. It doesn't matter if you're redeemed or unredeemed. You come to, to gain the peace of God the exact same way. Through the grace of God. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through His blood. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And what an amazing introduction to the book of Titus, Lord. We so look forward to continuing on in our study. And we thank You for what You've shared with us this morning. And we pray, God, for each and every heart here this morning as we prepare for communion, that you would draw us to yourself. Father, we are sent for the sake of the faith of the elect. And so here we are. Will you move in this place this morning? May your spirit have his way in our lives. As we continue to pray, if you do not know the Lord and you would like a relationship with Jesus Christ, your sins forgiven, to know that you know that you know that you're going to go to heaven, the eternal hope and security through Jesus Christ, I want you to just lift your hand this morning. If you don't know the Lord, I want to pray a prayer with you. Is anyone in here this morning that needs to know Jesus? You don't know Jesus, or maybe you thought you knew Jesus and you, you're feeling convicted this morning. You lift your hand up. So we just continue to pray. Listen, you're amongst friends and people are praying for you right now. God wants to do a work in your life. So is there anyone here this morning that doesn't know the Lord? Just lift your hand up. Maybe you're from California this morning. Anyone at all? <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time. And I don't... Lord, you have a sense of humor. I thank that about you, Lord. 
praise you, God. And we ask you, Lord, to, you know every heart in this room. And if there is anyone, anyone online listening to this later, will you draw their hearts by simply causing them to cry out to you, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am distant from you. My sin has separated me from you. But I know in this moment that I need you. And I want to come to that place of giving my life over to you to crown you the Lord of my life. Will you forgive me this morning of my sin? Will you cleanse me totally this morning, God? Will you help me to be born again to a living hope? I commit myself to you, Lord. I believe you died on the cross, that you rose again from the, from the grave for me personally. And so I invite you in this morning, God. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. Make me your slave, God. And Father, we just pray as we continue on in this moment that you would just have your way in each and every one of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.